Namaste and good evening to all of you. In this uh, second meeting of this season, the second of the satsangs, I'm going to continue a little bit my musings in the direction of what I said <coughs> last time. I started the, our very first satsang of this season referring to the highest principle. I actually referred to the principles as a general matter that we are governed by principles that either we consider that the universe is a chaos and a randomity and there is no meaning and that everything is just accident or if we consider that there is a meaning and an order of the universe if we consider that there is a structure and not a chaos then automatically we realize that our existence, our destiny, is governed by principles. And um, the great thinkers, the great seers, the great mystics and the great scientists of humanity have always tried to find out these principles, which are the principles which govern reality. And the last time, for those of you who haven't been here, because I want to connect with that, I want to go into it through the same gate, and to start from there, we spoke that the greatest of the metaphysical principles, as yoga is a gymnastic philosophy, it's a search of the ultimate philosophy, but not a philosophy of a sterile, theoretical, abstract way, but a living philosophy, like here and now, why am I here, what to do with my existence, what to do with the time which is flowing right now. And it all starts with the first principle, uh, both in order and as a matter of uh, essence, that there exists a permanent essence that we call consciousness, and which at the macrocosmic level is what many mystics have called God or Absolute or Divine or Eternity, and at the level of the microcosm of the human being, it's the same, only that it has been called Soul, Spirit, Essence, Atman, and other such essential things. And I said from the very beginning, that the existence of this hub of the wheel, the existence of this void, which is the essence of everything, the, it's like the number zero in mathematics, which added to any other number, apparently leaves that number unchanged, and yet without zero, we don't have mathematics, properly speaking. And therefore, exactly like this, behind any star, behind any galaxy, behind any energy, behind time itself, which, no, which is not a visible entity, but we know that time exists, may be very different from one place of the universe to another, but still time is a reality, and I can continue behind any reality, any energy, any manifestation, any form of matter or energy, there is this zero which underlies everything, like sometimes I would say imagine a city or a universe and everything is put on an infinitely thin transparent cellophane folio, which is infinitely thin, invisible, and everything seems to be suspended in the void, but actually it sits on something. 
that invisible zero, which you don't see, but which upholds everything, is the visual image. It's a sort of a visual metaphor for this first principle that everything in its essence is of the Buddha nature. It is void. It is made of Atman Brahman. It is made of this fundamental spirit, Purusha, the Shiva nature, Nirvana, called in so many ways. And as I said, this first principle refers to the other side of reality. Now, when I'm sitting with you here, there is in between us an interaction at the level of this first principle, which most of you cannot even fathom, like it's almost like out of this world. And then there is a lot of other interaction which happens at the level of the fields of energy of this universe. So all those energies which flow between us here, understanding, intelligence, opening, revelation, liking or disliking some things which are happening or some uh, phenomena which are happening, all those things belong to the realm of energies the realm which the Indian metaphysics calls the realm of Prakriti or the realm of manifestation. Or later in the Tantric tradition, in the same Hindu environment, what has been called Shakti or the field of energy or the goddess, the feminine. And there is this invisible, mysterious, indescribable first principle or essence which, as I said uh, last time, and that's where we stopped approximately, because I said that one of the most desperate attempts of spirituality is to try to bring this first essence close to the understanding of the human beings. Not that it is not close existentially, because it's here and now. There's nothing closer than this first principle that we can call God or cosmic consciousness, or Shiva consciousness, or Buddha nature, or universal supreme reality, or whatever. We can give to it uh, the hundred thousand names that have been given to it along human history. And as I said, this crossing between the non-manifestation, which is beyond the mind, beyond the spy, space, beyond the time, beyond authorship, beyond any clearly understandable principle, is exactly the big problem because we always try to fathom the universe with our minds. If there is a law of gravitation or if there are laws of electricity, we try to understand them intellectually and to measure them, to classify them, to use them. And when it comes to understanding this first principle, the instruments which we use in physics, in chemistry, in mathematics, in biology, in sociology, in any other field of knowledge, they don't apply anymore because we are trying to embrace with the mind something which surpasses the mind. We're trying to use words and concepts which go with time, sequence like this comes after this and this was before that, time, causality, space, this is here, this is bigger, this is smaller, and all that. We're trying to use such based concepts to describe something which is way 
beyond, totally beyond these concepts. And that's why, as I told the last time, this has been the, this is one of the sort of a tragedies, dharmas of spirituality, that spirituality is trying to introduce people to a reality which cannot be demonstrated to the mind in any way. There's no way to demonstrate, again, some people have tried by exhibiting paranormal powers, by poetry, by metaphor, by parables, by all sorts of ways they have tried to convey to people. The question is that if you can stop a rain from happening or if you can raise a dead person from their grave, why does that necessarily demonstrate that there exists a transcendental spiritual reality of this universe? It doesn't. It just does by irrationality because people say, wow, this person is so awesome, they must know what they are talking about. But it doesn't demonstrate by any logical principle that if you can fly in the air or dematerialize your body from one place, turn it into light or whatever, and rematerialize it in some other place, that this means that there exists God. There is no inference, there is no logical sequence in between those things. The display of the most astonishing cities or paranormal abilities doesn't demonstrate the existence of God because cities are just exceptional laws of nature and the fact that somebody can say, beam me up, Scotty, and just go in a Star Trek-like transportation mode or something, why does that demonstrate the existence of any cosmic consciousness? So, as I said also last time, we are starting from a very fuzzy ground because spirituality and the spiritual part of yoga which results from it um, is starting from the very beginning on uh, a top-notch level it starts from the level where it is indemonstrable uh, Kashmirian Shaivistic teachers translated it for European languages some 50-60 years ago translated it as the existence of something which they call spiritual intuition. Exactly as there is a Svadhisthana chakra intuition, which is of an emotional, sexual, relational, sensual typology, exactly as there is an intuition at the level of Vishuddha chakra, which is an intuition which refers to aesthetics, principles, creativity, exactly in the same way we can define another, a third type of intuition at the level of the crown chakra, which is a sort of an intuition in which one has the intuition of the spiritual reality. Like, I can't tell you why I know that it is there, but I know that it is there. Even in the case of Jesus, when he was agonizing, crucified, and he even complained about it because his sensation of powerful contact with the divinity evaporated, and he simply con complained and he said, my God, my God, why have you left me? He didn't say, now I feel nothing and therefore it means it was all a schizophrenic illusion which I had during my last 20 years, and it actually demonstrates that God doesn't exist. Sorry, in the last moment now on the cross, I realized that I was wrong. He never said he was wrong. The spiritual intuition remained, 
He didn't say there is no God because now I'm feeling nothing and it's like I woke up from some delusion which I had. Although he was not feeling anything and his mind and body were agonizing, he still knew in a core somewhere and he was talking to God. He said, my God, why have you left me? Like, this is a cruel game. You are playing with me. But there was not a doubt that there was there something that he was sent from on high to do what he did. And therefore, this I would call by spiritual, by, by the standards of the translators from Kashmiri Shaivism, I would call it a spiritual intuition. It is like the intuition, but it refers to the divine. It's an intuition only about this Purusha, only about this spirit, only about this divine nature. So, the whole of spirituality and the whole of existence comes together with this uh, great mystery. I remember having read a joke which was used by Osho in one of his lectures. Uh, just recently, a couple of days ago, I was reading it to somebody with uh, Nizamuddin, with this uh, Sufi hero, folk hero, who is hit by a car and it's in front of a church and then the priest comes and says, you are going to die, you are dying here, let me save you on the last breath. And he says, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe uh, in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Ghost? And Nizamuddin opens his eyes, dying, and he says, I'm about to die, and this man is asking me philosophical puzzles. You know, it's like, who knows? You know, it's like, nobody knows for sure. You know, the guy says, I'm dying, and this guy is asking me the fundamental questions while I'm dying. You know, haven't been able to answer those questions for a lifetime, you know. And now when I'm dying, you come and ask me, it's like, you know, it's like, Stop giving me puzzles even in the last moment, you know. So, the human being, there is a, this is a sort of a test of transcendence for going from finite to the infinite, where the human being has to walk this narrow bridge of spiritual intuition. I even hesitate in calling it faith, because when you study yoga, you see that faith is a power which comes from the third eye, and faith is a multifaceted power and can be used in many ways like the materialistic uh, people who take these principles and use them in uh, very often limited and selfish purposes not always, I don't have a condemnation towards that as a matter of principle they say if you believe that you have a villa with a swimming pool you are going to have a villa with a swimming pool because you visualize it and you believe firmly that it's yours. This faith, this is a faith, but this faith has nothing to do with the intuitive faith that you are in contact, that you are the extension, that you are the participation into a cosmic consciousness which is invisible, unfathomable, perfect, absolute, eternal, ineffable, and I could give you here a series of flabbergasting epithets about what mystics of all times have said about this reality. And that's why it's doomed from the beginning uh, that this first principle is always under a question mark and it remains the mark of certain chosen souls. 
here in Agama we take over the Tibetan uh, standardization or way of presenting these things and it's valid in India as well that people have to be prepared that some souls are old souls and when you are an old soul you have developed so much the part of the Prakriti that you acutely feel the lack of the part of Purusha or the spirit and that is the only possible freedom and the only possible immortality and the only possible contact with the infinite and then some human souls after they have lived 5000 lifetimes as a human being or perhaps like Buddha who when he got enlightened he said that he remembered 10,000 lifetimes as an ordinary human being and even in animal lives before becoming the Gautama Buddha from 25 centuries ago, that then he was ripe, then he was ready. And after going through many, 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 many lifetimes where everything is consumed, burned out, exhausted, then the only thing left is this hope for the infinite, the only thing left is this nostalgia for the cosmic universal consciousness, the only thing left is this spiritual intuition in which still your mind cannot grasp it, but at the same time the intuition feels it very, very clearly. Of course, uh, intuition, we have a sort of intuitive perception of things anyway, because even we think we are. I think I'm an entity, I think I'm a soul, I think I'm a being. And modern science in its skeptical materialistic part, not because not everybody is there, says you are not, there is no consciousness, there is no spirit, it's all an electrochemical illusion produced by your brain, you don't exist as such, it's just you are just a bunch of atoms and molecules and cells and whatever, and uh, therefore uh, even this is an illusion. So I have an intuitive feeling that I am, and I have to argue with those that say, no, you are not, it's just a dream, it's just an impression, but you really, really speaking, you are not. So the question is, of course, where is the reality? So, is the reality in this supreme intuition, or is the reality in the limitations of the mind, which is exactly like the waves of the sea that hurt into a cliff made of rocks? And they keep foaming and breaking and hitting that cliff. And it's like nothing. The mind tries and tries and tries and tries. And the divine consciousness is like an unbreakable cliff which resists the, efforts of the, the effort of the mind to embrace it because it's of a different quality. It doesn't dissolve in water. It doesn't, uh, it's not of the same quality as the mind. So this being said, uh, we, we let's stay a little bit with this first principle because much derives from it. Because from here we start what is called the spiritual part of yoga, which for some of you is the essential concept in your lives. And for some of you it's scary and distant and a little bit extreme. There are many principles in yoga and those who study the metaphysical workshop, they already discovered some of the uh, mysterious, magic, wonderful structure of the universe, structure of time, structure of human life, structure of evolution. So there exist other principles 
But as soon as we go to the next principles on that list, we come out of the spirit, we come out of the purusha, we come out of the transcendence, and we are going into energy. Then there are principles, like just to quote, to make you understand, I'm not going to insist on those, at least not today, it's not my intention, and I don't know if I will continue with an enumeration of these principles in the coming satsangs, because there are several other topics that I want to touch in this season, and these are things which you learn in metaphysical classes, in workshops and so on, so I don't want to duplicate that, but as soon as you come into energy, into the Shakti aspect, into the Prakriti or the manifestation, you start having principles like the principle of the vibration. As soon as there are two, the Shiva and the Shakti, there is a vibration between them called Spanda by the Kashmirian mystics, which is the life of the universe, which is the very first manifestation of vibration. And then everything is vibration starting from the primordial vibration which exists mm. in the bosom of the divine and then if there is a vibration that vibration engenders immediately the concept of polarity because there is a minimum and a maximum there is a minus and a plus there is no vibration unless it goes between a pole which is plus and minus so from there it starts that the universe starts having polarity the shiva and shakti the yang and the yin and then if there is polarity but still that polarity is at the level of the principle like a coin that has two faces, the heads and the tails, and the heads and the tails cannot be separated from the coin, and therefore the coin is three things. The coin is the one, the coin, and the coin is the two things which form the coin, which are the heads and the tails. And therefore we have one, and we have two, and we have three. And therefore there is the principle that whenever there is oneness and polarity, vibration and polarity, we are having unity, duality and trinity all of them forming a universal mass as Kashmiri Shaivis sometimes is called a triadic mysticism that it's a mysticism based on the understanding of this triadic basic structure of the universe and still at the level of this fundamental thing if there is a vibration this vibration automatically entails the existence of a rhythm of a frequency and this entails the fact that there is a timeline because it cannot be frequency without time and thus all of these already start taking us into what's happening how does the Shakti create the universe what is the dance of Shiva and Shakti what is the Spanda how God becomes from one two and three and then how the universe is being created and then only you go to the manifestation itself, which is at the level of the Nara, of the creation, as the Kashmirians put it. And there you have a lot of principles coming up. Like there is the principle of correspondence, that microcosm and microcosm are one and the same thing. That everything is made from the mind, the mind being the highest force in the manifested six chakras of the universe that everything therefore is an illusion because everything so it's the principle of illusion that there exists an evolution individual and global that there is a law of action and reaction and reciprocity which is where we start the whole knowledge about karma and that from that karma there comes evolution actually it came before evolution and uh, 
from there they start a few more principles. I'm not going to just make a sterile listing of principles for you, which are defining existence in the world. That since, just to give you an example, because I don't want to leave it mysterious, but I don't want to go into all details, it's useless now. Since the soul exists in time, and we all exist in time, and we are in the middle of a process of evolution, then there appears the famous principle of usefulness, which is illustrated by the parable of the denarii, or talents, of Jesus in the Bible. That some, a man gives to his servant ten, ten talents, or denarii, some coin, some financial unit, and one of them goes and buries it in the garden because he's afraid he will lose it, and the other one does some business with it and makes out of ten, fifteen. And the master, who is God, is unhappy with the one who buried the talents and is happy with the one who multiplied them. Like the meaning of life itself is not that you should die the same way you are born. If you die the same way you are born, it means you just wasted oxygen on the face of this earth because you are supposed to be more when you die than when you are born. You are supposed to evolve, even a 1%, even a little, little, but every life has to give some evolution. So, as I say, logically from all this, we have a principle at the level of the transcendental consciousness, the first principle. We have a few principles at the level of Shakti, which are the principles of how the energy works, how the universe is made of energy, and how the universe splits in Shiva and Shakti to make possible this miracle in which we live. And finally, we have uh, quite a few principles which define life in Prakriti, life in the manifestation. I'm not going there. I'm saying tonight, still for... Uh, because last uh, lecture was short uh, due to the young spiral, and because there are quite a few things that I wanted to have mentioned, touching your own practice, touching your own aspiration. I'm not trying to give here lectures of metaphysics and philosophy. Uh, and just to make a point, and maybe then I should present PowerPoints and diagrams on the board. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do. When I speak to anybody who wishes to listen in this school to the weekly satsangs, I'm speaking about things which may help you in your practice, which may help you find out why you are here, what you want to do with your lives, what is important for you. And that's why I start from the principles because they guide us and I'm trying to bring it down to what is happening in the daily yoga practice and spiritual practice that we do here. And that's why uh, we stay with the first principle because all the other principles, they go in the direction of energy and manifestation. And this first principle is the foundation of the spiritual part of yoga. Anybody who came to the what is yoga knows that we do yoga because we want health and healing and lose weight, put on muscle or whatever we want to do to the physical body, detox, energize, regenerate. We do yoga because we want to live a good life because we simply want to use yoga as the best friend, as the best instrument in living a good life. We want to live yoga because we want to enhance our life by living in a paranormal way, like we want to be able, like Immanuel Swedenborg, to lie down, get out of the body, and fly to the planet Mars or Venus, 
and go in the astral body millions of kilometers away and see what's happening and have knowledge and experience and vision and then come back to our physical body and write a book about what we saw like we want to achieve paranormal phenomena here i gave an example only with astral projection but there are tens of paranormal capabilities and when I will do the parapsychology workshop in the introduction, I'll try first to make a survey of what does parapsychology research today scientifically, like what is known that happens around in terms of scientific research. And uh, thus, uh, people are studying many ways of yoga, and the spiritual part of yoga is always a controversial one. Some people from the very beginning, because they have a strong reason, their mind is clear and strong, but because the spiritual intuition is somehow clogged or not strong enough, then there are many people who deny the first principle. Like they would do yoga without God, without spirit. Even the great Swami Vivekananda, my namesake from 120 or more years ago, he was a rationalist. And irony of ironies, his guru was one of the most hysterically mystic gurus of the modern history of India, Ramakrishna, who was a nutcase, who was a divine madman, who was a bhakta, a bhakti yoga person, and he was so much inflamed by this divine intuition, and who never bothered to try to demonstrate anything. Here in Agama, when you go to the metaphysical workshop, we give you the best knowledge from Yogananda and Shankaracharya and Buddha and you name it. And it's like everybody who goes to the metaphysical workshop by the day six says, now the world has changed for me. Now I know why I do what I do. Now I have a crystal clear understanding. Of course, Still, a metaphysical workshop cannot demonstrate the existence of Purusha or of the first principle. But it gives you, in Agama, we try to satisfy the need of your mind for clarity, because then it's like your mind waves down a flag and gives you a green light and says, okay, I kind of understood. It doesn't sound completely insane. I think I should give it a try. And then there is a mixture between your spiritual intuition, which urges you, your Ishvara Pranidhana, your aspiration, which from inside urges you and says, do it, try it, it's worth it. You know, go into this direction and your mind, which could be your worst enemy and say, no, 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 I must be going crazy. No, 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 it's really, uh, they must hypnotize us here in Agama or something. Or, if your mind says, you know what, this actually makes sense, an understanding of the universe like this, it actually could be so. It has never been demonstrated absolutely that it is not so. Therefore, I'm open. I, and the mind then gives you a break. The mind says, okay, if you feel intuitively that this might be it, I give you a green light. Launch yourself into this experience and see if it is so. So, um, again I'm saying, um, this spiritual part of yoga is always put, it puts a challenge to people. The great Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, his guru, after Vivekananda became enlightened, and I'm going to get back to that story, because he got enlightened in a shocking way, uh, Ramakrishna said, 
this man, my disciple Vivekananda, he is one of the seven rishis. The seven rishis are the pillars of the Indian spirituality. So Ramakrishna, as crazy as he was, he says this man is not less than the incarnation of one of the seven rishis. And then he was asked, how comes that the incarnation of one of the seven rishis was an atheistic idiot? He was not an idiot, he was super intelligent. But in a mystical way, he was an idiot. Like he was intelligent and yet completely blocked. He had a, a fear, a typical thing. It's one of the, he manifested it in the typical signs of the astrological sign of the Capricorn. Utilitarian, muladharistic, rationalistic, calculated and so on. And not seeing any usefulness in any mysticism. No? And it went to the point where he declared to Ramakrishna, listen, sir, I see that people think you are some sort of great master or something. I personally have doubts if you are not insane. He told to his guru, I think you are mentally disturbed because you believe in God too much and you are too much singing and gone into it with it. And ultimately, you cannot give any ultimate proof about all this thing. And therefore, I, I keep thinking that maybe you have a screw, a, lo a loose screw somewhere in your head. Because it's not really... Vivekananda challenged his guru because he was incapable to believe. This intuition was so little and his rational engineering-like mind was so strong that it was like an ant fighting with an elephant. You know, he could not break through. And then, in his case, Ramakrishna did one of his famous uh, spiritual miracles because, of course, it's not demonstrable. Again, we cannot prove it in a laboratory. But actually, the story goes that when uh, Vivekananda was in such a turmoil, one day Ramakrishna just touched him, touched him with the foot, just stretched his foot and touched him like this. And when he touched him, Vivekananda went in Samadhi spontaneously. Boom. And he stayed in Samadhi for days. And... And then people were worried, like, is this guy not going to sleep or eat or something? And Ramakrishna said, let him go. He buggered me for years, you know, with his not understanding. He let him just stay there and enjoy his state of samadhi. And he let him stay days in samadhi, you know, without disturbing him. Because he, but actually Vivekananda did not practice in that life for it. He may have been a great spirit in a previous life. And Ramakrishna said he was a pre-enlightened spirit. He was not enlightened in 1880 first. He got enlightened first 5,000 years ago as a rishi. And he came, he was born in a noble family in Bengal, and he had such a strange structure that he could not remember. He had a nostalgia, that's why he was frequenting Ramakrishna. There was something torturing him and pulling him near a madman. And on the other hand, his mind was so... That half of himself, more than half of himself, was asking itself, what am I doing with this madman? What am I doing with this hysterical guy here? I don't even believe in him. It's too much. I can't take it. So, uh, even in the case of a great spirit like Vivekananda, who is not just because Ramakrishna said he was great. History demonstrated, after Ramakrishna passed away, Vivekananda lived another 10, 15, 20 years, and he did great things. 
he was a great man indeed. Ramakrishna was not wrong, was not just saying because he is my spiritual son, he is great. And then the future demonstrated that he was an idiot. He was not. Vivekananda was a great man. And he did great things for modern spirituality and for India in particular. But this great man couldn't break through. He was held by his own intelligence. His own intelligence was so strong compared with his intuition that his intelligence was telling to his intuition, shut up, shut up, you don't exist. There is nothing. And so on. So many people, for many people, uh, either even if they are not ex-rishis like Vivekananda, they are fighting with this. This is the fight with spirituality. Yoga is called yoga because it's the union which the human being experiences. It's the uniomistica. That's the fundamental meaning of the word yoga. We can use it in derivate meanings, but the ultimate meaning when Patanjali says yoga, that's what he means by yoga. So yoga was created primarily by some mystical geniuses who wanted to create a methodology for people who have this intuition to fulfill their dream, to fulfill their goal. But at the same time, this methodology of yoga, many people prefer to do much less of it. We have in the school people, and we don't blame anybody for it. We have people who come to the, let's say, therapeutical yoga courses or something, and they tell us, Swamiji, we are not interested in this mystical part of yoga. We came here to learn how to deal with tuberculosis via yoga. When somebody has tuberculosis, instead of taking antibiotica or doing this, what can you do with yoga? Because we know that yoga works as a great, incredible, healing, powerful instrument. And the spiritual part that there might be a Purusha, a Shiva consciousness, and that I myself, if I do meditation for the next six years, I might have a state of Samadhi and unite with that, could be possible. But I guess I'm not going to do meditation for the next six years because I don't feel motivated right now. Maybe in 20 years, maybe in 20 lifetimes. I don't know when. Maybe that motivation will come. I feel a little bit curious. So if we could get this nirvana thing in uh, 20 days, perhaps I would find 20 days to do it. But like this, if you want me to stay with you for 12 years and practice meditation and rise my kundalini and activate my crown chakra, honestly, I have two children waiting for me at home. I, I just started a business and I don't want to drop it right now. I'm pursuing a PhD in philosophy and for me it's relevant for my career. I want to do this, I want to do that. And honestly, this thing with reaching nirvana is not the first on my to-do list. It comes 25th on my to-do list. So if one day I have time, I maybe will look into this nirvana thing. It's not a shame. For some people it's an awful thing to say. But for some people it's not. They say, you know, I have to be myself. I have to be sincere. I have to look like, what do I want to do with my life? This is what I want to do with my life. So people uh, have sometimes qualms. Agama both attracts and rejects people because here sometimes we speak from the standpoint of the highest spirituality because yoga was created by people like Patanjali and like Shankaracharya 
and like Matsyendra and like the likes of them, Abhinavagupta, and these people were going top of the top. And this sometimes frightens people because they say, hey, in Agama they are too damn spiritual all the time. This Swami comes and raves like a mystic all the time. And I, who am not really so interested in all this Unio Mystica with God, I get to feel guilty sometimes because everybody around me seems to be part of a club. They have an inner club of theirs, of the people who want. And I, you know, I'm sometimes ashamed to tell them, uh, I'm going to vote with Donald Trump, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not with you guys. You know, so better I don't even say it, you know. So some people have to live a double life in which they pretend, but at the same time, and some people are very brave in this way and say, no, perhaps from that standpoint, my time has not come. If I understand a manner in which I could heal cancer or hepatitis C, or tuberculosis, or something. And if I just go in the world and do that like John of God, you know, I do healing for the next 40 years, and people know that there is a place in the world where somebody is tackling cancer with yoga, that's my dharma. I, I will probably not reach nirvana in this life, but it's, I'm not even motivated to. I feel that I want to help hundreds of thousands of people who suffer from a very ignoble and very uh, diminishing disease. And that for me is good enough. So we always know that when we talk about the first principle and the Shiva consciousness which is transcendental and uh, indemonstrable, people always, some people have a little bit of nausea. It's like, okay, again we go into that. I hope that tonight Swami would say something interesting about, for example, healing principles in yoga or something which really interests me in the daily life. But he keeps on raving for his uh, 10 or 20 fanatics spread in the crowd here who want to go to the top of the mountain, you know. And it's like, uh, it's, it's skewed, you know, it's not for everybody. Because many people are a little bit afraid of this and they said, if you don't get some of it, it's like you don't get anything out of it. But remember that in a more discreet way, this first principle influences all the other parts of yoga. Even if you do healing yoga, you cannot forget the soul. I said, I mentioned an allusion to it last week. No, Hippocrates says you cannot heal the body without healing the soul. Or if you want the principle of the Greek medicine expressed in Latin... I don't know how to say it in Greek, but everybody knows it in Latin, mens sana in corpore sano. No, it's like a healthy mind in a healthy body. How are you going to get a healthy body if your mind is not healthy? You cannot heal the body without healing the mind. And healing the mind, it means your emotions, your dreams, your self-destructive patterns, and a lot of other things, your beliefs. Like, I believe I'm stupid, and I believe I'm, I don't know, wicked and limited because my mom beat me when I was a child, you know, and then I have a pattern. I'm thinking against myself just by believing, by sticking to a belief which is not noble, not worthy. So, uh, even when you do other parts of yoga, in a distant way, you still refer to the first principle. Because a human being has to be, in a certain way, centered. There is a health which is physical, there is a health which is emotional, there is a health which is mental, and there is even a health which is spiritual. And the human being, what does it mean 
to be intellectually healthy. The father of homeopathy has defined it as one, the main characteristic of it, is that your intellect is fully creative. Like when you have creativity, you have a healthy mind. And when you lost creativity, your mind has a worm in it. It has some parasite in it. Your mind is not healthy anymore. First sign of decrease of the health of the mind is the loss of, of mental creativity. And thus, uh, there are many definitions, but remember the human being is a complex holistic structure and all these things are there. Stopping at the first pillar, this one with the spiritual realization, um, I'm also always telling to people that this is the very purpose of life. It's not artificial. Sometimes it sounds like there is a humanity made of 7 billion people. 99.9% .9 of these people are happy, are happy with having a car or two, a house, a dog, a family, a couple of children, a job, a career, and they go through life like this, and they are the cannon fodder of history, sometimes like in Rwanda or whenever, there is genocide and they are executed, and then humanity stands up again and tries more, and you know, it's a terrible thing, sometimes a tsunami is coming and killing quarter of a million people, and okay, what does humanity do? dusts itself off, stands up, and tries to continue further on. So, people sometimes have this feeling that there is a large mass, which are normal people, the decent citizens. They may be called bourgeois, but they are decent citizens. And in the middle of these citizens, you get a Vivekananda and the Ramakrishna, who are nutcases. They are not really violent nutcases, so they shouldn't be put in a straitjacket because... They don't endanger other people and they don't do violence. But maybe they should be medicated by force because these people are raving lunatics. They dream about some incredible freedom and knowledge and omniscience and they are dissatisfied and then they do years and hours of meditation and kundalini rising and all that. And it's like these people have a sort of an artificial thing, like I'm not satisfied to just have a suburban house and two kids and a family and a job and a career. Well, that makes me sick and tired. I want to be omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent. Compared with the multitudes, that sounds like a rare disease. No, it's like people like Swami have got candida on their meningeal serve. No, you've got, a, you've got a bacteria in your brain and you should seek help because in a mysterious way, you know, for the normal person, it's like, why can't you be satisfied with a Labrador dog and a couple of kids, you know? Why do you need to have omniscience, you know? Why, why are you hunting omniscience? Why isn't a normal life just good enough? And therefore... For many people it appears because the spiritual aspirants are so rare, it appears like the spiritual realization, this chase of something spiritual is artificial, you know. Like there's a bunch of people who go in Christian monasteries, and another bunch of people who go into Buddhist monasteries, and another bunch of people who go in Sufi dargahs, and another bunch of people who go into Hindu ashrams, and all these people who are just like one in a thousand, you know, a very small minority, are like damaged goods. They all of them have some loose screw in their head, and they are not satisfied with what all of us are satisfied with, 
they want something extraordinary, outrageous. They want eternal life, you know. They want to stop dying, you know, for God's sake. You know, we all die, and one person in 10,000 wants to not die. It's like, why can't they just calm down and be like the rest of us? Live their lives, put their head down, and just carry the yoke of daily life. That's why I'm trying to show, first of all, that spiritual realization, while it may seem an oddity, it's actually not something artificial. The spiritual, spirituality doesn't see that life is a Labrador dog, a Labrador retriever, and two kids and a car. And then spiritual realization is like a boil on your brain. You know, it's like some sort of wart grown on your brain. But on the contrary, they say, they show always that the spiritual realization is the very purpose of life. It's the end of evolution. And you have to realize that here things are black and white. Always in many things which I say about spirituality, there is always this thing that you are to the edge of something which is black and white. If there is God, if the reality of the cosmic consciousness is true, if there exists spirit, if spirituality is a reality, and... Jesus was incapable to demonstrate it to you. I am not even going to try. No, it's like we don't even try to demonstrate. We simply say, if you have the intuition of this in your heart, you have it. And if not, we pray for you that you start having it little by little. There is no way in which we, there is not, this is not something which can be learned in school. It's a sort of an intuitive aspiration the famous Ishvara Pranidhana that we talk about. And that's why if there is a structure in the universe, and if the universe is not chaos, then there must be an evolution, a purpose, a goal of life. Things are going somewhere. If all this thing is just an accident, and we are megalomanic, deluded, self-deluded people, sitting here and figuring out that maybe we do a great thing and talk to Shambhala, then, I'm sorry, but it was all a dream and an illusion from one end to the other. But if it is not a dream and an illusion, then the only logical consequence is that there is a process of evolution. And if there is a process of evolution, it's not optional. Nobody has asked the reptiles if they want to turn into birds or into mammals. It's a process which is coming from the force of nature. It's inevitable. So you hear, either there is a chaos and then there is no evolution because there is no beginning and no end and there is no meaning, or if there is an order in this universe, then there is evolution and that evolution helps to, happens to you as we speak and that's why everybody is doomed, in the correct commas, to be a Buddha. Even if you kick and scream, you will become a Buddha. When Yudhishthira was asked by Dharma, and I often give this example, it's one of the gems from the Mahabharata, he was subjected to a test of wisdom, like the Sphinx of Egypt, that was asking wise questions to the aspirants, and if you could not answer the question of the Sphinx, 
then you could not enter into the gate of the mysteries. So, in the same way, Yudhishthira, the son of Dharma, is asked by his father about 20 questions of wisdom to see if he is really ready to go to the next generation. And the last question which Yudhishthira receives is capital, because Dharma, his invisible father, is asking Yudhishthira, the eldest son, what is inevitable? And you know the American answer, which is not the wise one, of course. The inevitable thing is death and taxes for the Americans, because that's what obsesses them, obviously, in their society. For Yudhishthira, what is inevitable is not death and taxes. Yudhishthira, when he's asked what is inevitable, he says happiness. And happiness, he doesn't mean a watered-down thing that I gave you two cherries and you ate them and you say, mm, now I'm really happy I ate two cherries. That's just a watered-down pleasure of your senses, a pleasure of Zvadistana, of your sense of taste. When he says happiness, he means ananda, he means bliss, he means beatitude, he means ecstasy. So Yudhishthira says, it is inevitable that all of you will taste ecstasy. Question is just, when will you pull the finger out of that orifice and start working for it to make it happen in this life quickly? You can wait another 500,000 years and still ecstasy will hit you. Later, some of you earlier in this very lifetime and some of you later. But it's inevitable. It's like a river that doesn't want to go into the sea. Rivers end into the sea. That's the inevitable dharma of every river to go into the ocean. It's the inevitable dharma of every soul to become a Buddha. And that's why we have not been asked to vote on the phenomenon of evolution. If there is no order in this universe, then evolution is an illusion coming from Swami Vivekananda, who is selling illusions and dreams to you. The whole universe is chaotic. There is no before and after, therefore there is no meaning, nothing has any structure, everything is just a randomity, accident and chaos. So, one day there comes the aspiration to be reunited. Although I'm telling you that you are doomed to become Buddhas, and it's only a matter of time, not everybody says, oh yeah, sure, let's do it. Some people feel like they are kicking and screaming and somebody is pushing them and they say, no, 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 Buddhahood for me. No, 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 no. Like, sure, you can do that. No, which means uh, one day there comes the aspiration to be reunited. Like in the middle of this process of evolution where the cows become something more advanced than the cows and the reptiles become birds or animals or mammals, whatever they become, some, in some people... And many of you are here, because that's why you are here. There comes the conscious aspiration. Like you simply say, well, you know what? Not only that I evolve willy-nilly, but I kind of feel like I want to evolve. I feel like I would like to be a more evolved human being. And that's why uh, not everybody goes as fast and as radically into that. Um, Patanjali himself presents this case that uh, sometimes people who did yoga for a while, they re and it's, it's beautifully shown also in the initiatic 
symbolic movie of Alexandro Jodorowsky, which is called The Holy Mountain. We used to show it every month here in Agama, but somehow we diminished a little bit with this cinema project. We have a spiritual cinema project, which I want returned to you, because I feel it almost like an offense that some of you did three levels of Agama, and you never saw the Holy Mountain. It's almost like the Holy Mountain and ten other such videos, they are like part of our course, you know, it's like they should be done together with the course. So we are working on that, that's just I'm venting out one of my uh, dreams. But as I'm saying, even in the, this movie and in Patanjali, there is this metaphor that uh, when somebody reaches to a high level, says Patanjali 2000 years ago, he says, you can meet the gods, you can meet entities, which are deities. That would be the correct English name for it. Because the word God is a word which is ambiguous in English, because the God can mean Zeus. Zeus is a God. But any Christian will tell you, wait a second, Zeus is not God. So there is a God with a capital G, which is the one on top of the pyramid, and there is the word God used for deities. And that's why to eliminate this confusion in English language, I prefer to keep the word God for the nirvana, for the purusha, for the universal consciousness, and to use for those high, strong, uh, big, awesome entities, spirits, to use the name deity. Those are deities. I'm not so, going to insist too much on this because many of these ideas are mentioned uh, by Yogananda and in our metaphysical uh, workshop. But uh, Patanjali says some people have the aspiration to grow up and they say being a human is like too little. But they don't want total union. They don't want the first principle entirely. They just want 10 centimeters higher, 10 meters higher. And that is... You know, becoming a deity versus total union. The gurus of yoga take this very seriously. When I was young, I witnessed a dialogue between a guru and his pupil. I knew them. They were not doing yoga my way. There was another yoga practice. And this was a woman. The disciple was a woman. And she was having some peculiar phenomena during her meditation. Every time she meditated, a certain thing happened. And uh, the guru told him, this is not the purpose of what we do here. This, when you have this phenomenon, she was blacking out in a certain way. Then he said, you are not going to go where I want you to go. So kind of try to avoid this. It's a pitfall. It's a, it's a sidetrack. And she felt very good about it. And she kept on doing this. And then after several months of this happening, the Guru told her, if you will continue meditating, like, let me make myself clear. If you will continue meditating in this way, when you die, you are going to become a deity. You are not going to reach nirvana and unite with the first principle. Like, it is possible to go just higher, but not totally, ultimately, to the last level. And that's why I'm saying there is an aspiration in the human being to be reunited, that I'm longing for the original ocean, I'm longing to return home, I'm longing to be part of the oneness. For some, the longing is just to escape the limitations of the human condition and to just have a position of power, of knowledge, 
which is superior and which would be like a breath of oxygen you know it would be better it's better that's all i wanted for now then of course later the process still continues remember happiness is inevitable thus when we look to preparing to conclude uh, realize that various religions and spiritualities talk about a spiritual realization, that there are prophets in the Judaism, and there are great saints in Christianity, apostles and great saints, and there are great Sufi and Islamic mystics who have reached, and there are Buddhist arhats who have reached enlightenment, and they are in Shambhala, and there are Hindu mystics who have become enlightened and liberated yogis. And almost every religion and every spirituality talks to us about some men and women who have reached the creme de la creme, the top of the uh, scale of evolution. And however, when the different spiritualities talk, each one of them according to the ethnic environment, according to the language, according to the dominant chakra where that message was delivered, the language and everything, the geographical purpose, the DNA of the people in that area and everything, it is presenting it in a different way. Because spiritual realization, if the target is inexplicable, then spiritual realization is inexplicable. It's exactly like I'm telling you, if you will do lots of spiritual yoga, you will reach something which I can't even start defining for you. So the question is, is spiritual realization desirable then? Intuitively, some people say, yes, I would do it, even if Swami cannot explain it quite, because I have the feeling that that's what I've been longing for the last million years of my soul. So for some people that intuition is strong enough. For some people they are puzzled by the fact that you know we try to define spiritual realization so that you intellectually decide if you should go for it or not. And that's why every spirituality is trying to give you a perspective. And, for example, the Tantric tradition of Kashmir, which is one of the strongest spiritual traditions of this planet, even in yoga and in Tantra, it stands like a jewel above, above everything else. In the Vigyana Bhairava, when Shiva himself, it's a dialogue, it's a sort of an imaginary dialogue. No, it's not imaginary for the spiritualists, but let's anthropologically call it an imaginary dialogue between Shiva and Shakti and Shakti asks Shiva what is your essence what is the nature of Shiva so for the people who practice spirituality and Shiva answering about himself talking about himself Shiva says this nature of Bhairava he says nobody can define it in any way and any everything which has been written about it in the whole history of humanity is like and makes a wonderful comparison he says it's like sweet candies which the mother gives to a child to take a bitter medicine like in india much of the ayurvedic medicine is sometimes bitter and very strong and the children won't take it and then to determine the children to take a shitty medicine you give them candies or sugar together with it. And you say, if you drink this, look, I'm going to give you this bonbon, you know. And the child gets bought into doing it. 
So basically, Vijnana Bhairava, which is a text of maximum lucidity, says, uh, you have been told that if you do spiritual realization, it's going, you're going to feel great. It's sugar. It's just a sugar bonbon. It's not really true. It's your mother is lying to you to make you meditate. If you meditate, you are going to reach nirvana and it's going to be so damn good. Sugar coated. You cannot really say. It's beautifully illustrated in the movie The Matrix where Morpheus gives the green pill to Neo who is about to be uh, liberated from the Matrix and he eagerly takes it because he is a seeker. He wants to know the truth. He wants to find out what the Matrix is. And Morpheus withdraws the pill in the last second and he says, Neo, mind you, I'm not promising it's going to be good. I'm just promising it's going to be the truth. Like if you care about the truth more than you care about if it's pleasant or unpleasant, then take it by all means. But if you are going to whine like a coward afterwards, why did you give me the green pill? I was better off in my ignorance and oblivion. Then forget about it. Don't take it from the beginning. Stay. Stay in your ignorance and oblivion because maybe you are not ripe. It's like an apple that has to be picked up and sold like a splendid apple. And the farmer looks at the apple on the tree and says, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday I'll pick this apple. Like it's, it's Thursday. No, it's, it still has three days to go. Those three days, the last three days for an apple, they matter. It's not red enough. It's not perfumed enough. It's not sweet enough. It has to stay three more days. If your soul is not for picking today, then you need maybe three more years or three more lifetimes before your apple is ready to be picked up. That's why, you know, it's like some people are ready. They say, give me the green pill. I'm going to jump head forward into it. Why? Not because you hypnotize me or anything. Just because it's my need. I have an intuition and this intuition is like is driving me insane. And I don't care about what anybody says. I'm going to do this thing. And otherwise, then there is a hesitation. And Vigana Bhairava, which is a very lucid text of spirituality, tells you honestly. This is not a text for the masses. It's not a popularized text like the Bible or the Quran, which hundreds of millions of people have read and commented upon. Vigyana Bhairava is a super elite text, which probably a few tens of thousands of people have read it in this life, or on the face of this earth. It's something for a niche audience. And Vigyana Bhairava Tantra says, people, listen to Shiva. He tells you from the very beginning, whatever you heard being said about Nirvana, God, Shiva, infinite, immortality, it's all a white lie. It's all sugar candies to determine you to seek for it, to encourage you to like, you seek for it because you have the intuition anyway inside you. But then to encourage you to say like a child that learns to walk and the father goes two meters away and he says, yes, yes, come, 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 come. Now every one of you who has taught a child to walk you know that you have to encourage it in the beginning because it's not quite stable on its feet. 
No, and you have to encourage it. Exactly in the same way, you stood up, and then the spirituality is telling, yes, come, come, it's going to be so good. It doesn't mean it. It's not about that. It's not about the fact that it's going to be so good. Milarepa got poisoned and had so much pain. He said, if I put a quarter of my pain in that rock, in a huge boulder, it's going to crack. Such So much agony I have in me because of this painful poison. And he demonstrated it several times in several ways. Jesus got crucified. The best friend, disciple or teacher of Rumi got assassinated or chased away, Shams al-Tabriz and so on. Like the world is full of misery even in the world of enlightened beings. Even enlightened beings are martyrized and persecuted. And Ramakrishna died of a cancer in the throat, which is not a joke at all to die of a cancer in the throat. And Ramana Maharishi died of a bone cancer. So the list could continue. No? So, if anybody believes that uh, enlightenment is an invitation to a sort of uh, ecstasy plus I don't know what uh, heroin type of uh, endless ecstasy, that's wrong. There is a lot of... So, we start with the most, most sobering of this, the tantric tradition, which is crystal clear and very sharp, and which says everything which has been said about spirituality is a bit of a white lie because how are you going to describe the indescribable? Thus, we look at different traditions and we see that this total union in Christianity is described as a mixture of knowledge, of power, of love. Know that if you reached eternal life, you'll never die. You will live forever. You will be in ecstasy with the angels. You will be by the right hand of God. And you will have knowledge of what's happening in this universe. And you will be happy. And you will be showered in love from morning till evening, 24-7. And you will have a position of power. That if, for example, you think, where is St. Francis of Assisi now? You can pray to St. Francis. Say, St. Francis... Pray, pray to Jesus for me. Why? Because St. Francis is more powerful than me. St. Francis is sitting by the right hand of God. And he has privileges. He is in a position... So, when Christianity proposes a spiritual status, it proposes a spiritual status which looks not like in the Yoga Sutra. In the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and in the Nirvana original model of Buddha, it's like an extinction. It's like all your desires, any form of karma goes off and you are kaivalya. You are insulated in a pristine purusha spirit and the world for you has ceased to exist. It's like a fata morgana. It's like a maya which has disappeared. It's like a dream that has disappeared. And you simply are unconcerned with anything. You are just pure spirit. The Christian tradition doesn't define this part. Like some people who are the suicidal typologies, there exist people, and I'm not saying it as a pun, there are people who in spirituality, we call it in the Shakta Tantric tradition, we call it the typology of Dumavati. 
There are people who look for this. They, they, they say, I wanted to do spirituality and all I'm looking for is peace. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Like, give me a break. The universe is a mad place where everything changes, changes, changes and there is no center, no fulcrum, no stability. And all I want is peace. Rest. Repose. I know of a poet who says, I'm longing for repose. That repose is like a wheel that stops. Click. And then it's like that. The breath has stopped. The heart has stopped. The mind has stopped. The vrittis in the mind have stopped. And the person is in what Buddha aptly de described as a void. That void doesn't mean nothingness. That void means void. It means something called void, and which is not nothingness. It's void because it cannot be described by the words. If you read the Jet Kunedo book of uh, martial arts of Bruce Lee, who was not a great spiritual teacher or anything, he quotes from Chinese Taoist masters who say that void is luminous and warm. It is full of love and it is pure presence. Like the void is not described like actual nothingness. It's something which the mind cannot fathom. So some people love this. They say, I want to just jump in the void and forget, disappear, melt, silence forever. I, I'm longing for repose. Some people have this temperament. Some people would like that in a million years from now, they should be in myrrh and love and agape, and bodhisattva spirit, and in Shambhala, shining on the planet. And some people want that in a million years from now, they should be left alone by everybody and everything. It's different temperaments. It's the same spiritual reality, but different people see a different facet. Like you are climbing the north face, or the west face, or whichever face of a mountain. It's not, it doesn't look the same, and the path, is not the same. So that's why spiritualities are different. And some people who don't like one of them, they like another one of them. Some people say, you know, I like the Buddhist thing. I want void. Stillness. These people are giving me that I'm going to be on by the right hand of God and forever be in a love which flows like a river, ecstatic, and have knowledge and People will pray to me to help them because I will be like St. Basil the Great or like, I'm not interested in that. It looks like so much fuss. It's because you are looking at another dimension of the same phenomenon. It's the same phenomenon ultimately. That's why it's important for those of you who consider, hmm, I might look a little bit into the spiritual part of yoga. You have to find out which of these visions of spirituality attracts you. Because some people propose void, stillness, emptiness. Some people propose knowledge, power, love. In Hinduism, for example, the spiritual realization is not so much based on knowledge. In Buddhism, it's called enlightenment. And Buddha is related with the Sanskrit word Buddha, Buddhi, Bud, which is the root for Mercury in astrology. And it means Mercurian knowledge, intellectual knowledge. So in English, we have the same duality when people say, enlighten me. But they don't mean put me in samadhi. 
They mean give me information about this topic. So enlighten me means just information. Like you download something to me. Therefore enlightenment is a word which is double-edged because it means on one hand a, a form of knowledge like Buddha. He says I reached nirvana but before I reached it I saw all my previous lives. I discovered where I come from, who I actually am and in the last minute I touched the earth to remember all my history. Who I am, where do I come from and who is going in nirvana right now. So for some people the knowledge, power, love, but in India they call it moksha or mukti, it's not enlightenment. We sometimes use it in English that Indian yogis have longed for enlightenment, but strictly speaking in Sanskrit they don't call it enlightenment. Some of them call it kaivalya and nirvana, which is a Buddhist way and it means zero void, and some of them call it moksha or mukti, which means liberation. The Indian soul was not always fascinated by disappearing. It was obsessed with freedom. And the freedom is the freedom from karma. Everybody is a slave of karma. You look around and not even one person in a million is free from karma. Everybody is the slave of karma. And then we know that Buddha perhaps had no more karma. That uh, Shankaracharya or Abhinava Gupta, they didn't have any more karma. And in India they have this ideal. They say, if I could reach to a point where I can keep living in a body or just die on the spot, I don't care ultimately, or I will choose at that time, but I want that from today on I should live in absolute freedom. Is there an absolute freedom? Is there a great freedom? Because freedom is one of the great ideals of the human life. Some people want to live in knowledge and meaningfulness and they say, I don't want to live a meaningless life. It's completely terrible. Some people want to live a life of love and they say, without love I cannot live. Some people say, I want to be enlightened and to know this universe. And some people say, I want to be free. And everybody is therefore going for another facet but describing the same process. That's why when the Hindus speak about karma and liberation, um, we have the, both the forgetfulness of the human body, that you are in a human body, and if you are in a human body, according to the Hindu-Buddhist theory, each and every one of you here was a human being at least a thousand times before. At least a thousand lives you had as a human being. At least a thousand times you died. Sometimes violently, sometimes peacefully. You have experienced lots of death. You have been shot and stabbed and you had cancer and you died drowned. And you, and you died of natural causes just by old age. And It has happened, all has happened to you many times over. And we don't remember. We don't remember any of this. There is a natural law which gives us this forgetfulness, that imagine Vivekananda, his guru Ramakrishna, who was a great seer and a great yogi, he said, this man is nothing else, nobody else, than one of the seven rishis. And he's sitting here and calling me crazy. Because he can't see it anymore. A great rishi, 
has been born in a Bengali family, lived for 20 years, 23 years in that body, and then he can't remember. Even when he meets with a divine person like Ramakrishna, he starts arguing with me, he starts quarreling with me. You know, it's like, if that can happen to an ex-Rishi, what to mention about the normal citizen who is a Tom, Dick and Harry? Of course they forget and they don't remember and they just go on through this. So there is a huge disadvantage, there is a huge bondage in this constant reincarnation and there are also advantages in the metaphysical workshop. Yogananda describes how beneficial it is to be born. That when you are born, there is a lot of shit. Like when you are in the astral world, you are not going to die of starvation. Because your astral body doesn't need physical food. But in the physical world, if you are a bum and you somehow are a loser, you don't have anything. What do you do? You, you sleep under a bridge and one day you don't have food and you die of starvation. The physical world is so shitty that it obliges you to get enough money for feeding yourself, for clothing yourself, for having a roof over your head. And then you are dependent on Shell Oil or whatever multinational, come Walmart or whoever you are working for. Some big capitalists are making you work, 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 so you just can have bread on your table, bread and butter on your table. How shitty the physical world is that it obliges me to sell eight hours per day of my life, which is one-third of my life, I have to sell it just to be able to feed this body. If I would be in the astral body, those eight hours would be mine. Plus, that I wouldn't need eight hours to sleep. So then, instead of eight hours of freedom per day, I would have 24 hours of freedom per day. To be out of the body is much more free than to be in the body. So then why come in the body? There must be benefits or necessities for from time to time you are sent in a body and you are sitting here with me in Kopangan. It said something can happen and indeed there is a huge value of this, that this enslavement is both a pain in the neck and it's both a golden opportunity. Socrates or Plato, I forgot one of them, seeing two hooligans fighting on the street, raised their hands in exasperation. Like, look at those human beings. They call themselves human. He raised their hands and he says, the idiots, if they would know how much you have to stand in queue up there to get a life down here. Like, when you want to be born, there is a queue. You have to buy a ticket to come down here. No? And it's like you stand in line and you are looking forward to a life and then you become a drunk and fight with somebody on the edge of the street. And then 30 years later, you die in a pool of vomit. And then when you die, you go and you say, what have I done with my life? You know, then it's nothing. No, it was all for nothing. A great praiseworthy effort for nothing. So, um, finally we reach to Buddhism. Just a few more minutes to go. Because I wanted to see to show you what derives from this first principle, which is the core of the spiritual part of yoga. Which again, I'm saying, I know that some of you are frightened about it, or in doubt about it, and it is your right to be so. It's the voice of your soul that has to speak in that way. That's why I'm trying to clarify as much as the intellect can clarify some of these things. The enlightenment in Buddhism is about 
knowledge, because that's why it's called enlightenment, and it results in later Buddhist teachings in the Bodhisattva ideal, which is a sort of alternative to the Christ-like consciousness, that the Bodhisattva stands on the edge of Nirvana forever and ever, helping anybody who wants to come in. Like if I have reached there, instead of just closing my eyes and poof, just going, I stand, although it's uncomfortable, and I'm like on the verge of an orgasm, and I know I could have the ultimate cosmic orgasm, but not yet, and I'm stretching out a hand and saying, come in the same place, feel what I feel right now, right on the edge, right on the threshold of the next thing. So this is an illustration of the fact that Buddhism, as well as Christianity and the Jewish mysticism and others, even some Hindu, Vedantic and Tantric disciplines, they see the universe as a sacrifice of the divine, that the universe was at peace and rest. The divine consciousness is one, and then it splits itself in two, Yang and Yin, Shiva and Shakti, and those two, they start dancing, they start tangoing, and producing the trigrams and the hexagrams and the whole wheel of the development of the universe. It's all a game of yin and yang. It's just coming from minus and plus dancing. Ever since, it's like in that beautiful Christian joke, which says, uh, in the sixth day, uh, it's a power, of course, it's not literal, from the Bible, in the sixth day, God created the animals and the birds and the plants, and God saw that it was good, and he rested. And then in the seventh day, he created Eve. And ever since, nobody has had any rest ever anymore. This is a wonderful joke, which in a ridiculous, um, um, profane way, says a great truth that as soon as you have agitation and polarity in the universe, then automatically there seems to be, like, why is all this thing going on and on and on and on, all this big bang pulsation of the universe, and to which avail, to which purpose? And it's seen as a sacrifice, like the divine could have not created. But at the same time, it is the nature of the divine consciousness to create, preserve, dissolve, hide, and reveal itself through grace. And that's why... It's like a sacrifice. It's like a part of the divine is taken out of its peace and made into this. And you say this world is full of misery. There is violence. There is hunger. There is pain. There are lots of things. And it could have all been just pure consciousness of the divine. It's like it's felt like a sacrifice that a part is taken from the transcendence and brought into the immanence so did it exist. Of course, this surpasses greatly the purpose of this um, uh, satsang tonight. This is something which I explain when I comment one part of the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivism in the workshop about Kashmiri Shaivism. We can't go as far as they like why, or if there is a divine why, but still this feeling exists that exactly as the divine consciousness, by a sort of sacrifice, produce the world, and that sacrifice continues with a Jesus or a Buddha who are a form of self-sacrifice, and then it continues with the Bodhisattvas who stand on the threshold of eternal life and they sacrifice their peace 
to be in the world. Like Milarepa didn't need to preach anything and to be envied and poisoned by a moron. But he did, nevertheless. And thus, it is a sacrifice for Milarepa to do that. It's a bodhisattvic ideal. And that's why when we are talking, when we are taking together all these views and we see this spiritual realization is many more things than we imagined. Because for some people it's extinction and peace. For some people it's eternal life and joy. For some people it's knowledge. For some people it's power. For some people it's love. For some people it's omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence. These are the three main divine attributes in Western uh, theology, that the divine is first of all omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent, all the three characteristics, that it's a form of freedom, a liberation, that it's a free existence, that it is an enlightenment, that it is a sacrifice, that it is a bodhisattvic ideal of compassion and um, supporting, and thus Concluding it, we see that in Kashmiri Shaivism, in Shiva Sutra and other fundamental texts, when they try to define what's the status of the enlightened being, they say when finally you have reached all the dimensions of this enlightenment, the movements of the body become mudras. The voice and the words become mantras. And so on. Because when somebody talks you from that place, then I don't need to tell you Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Shivaya Namaha. I can talk to you in mantras. And if we sing them together, then you will feel shudders of energy and your higher chakras will start being activated and energized. The same thing is happening if I speak freely to you. Because I don't need mantras. The word itself, when it is expressed from that level of consciousness, it becomes mantra. The movements of the body becomes mudra. It was the intuition of Hermann Hesse in his wonderful novel Siddhartha, where he describes a young man on his trip to enlightenment. And at some point this young man meets with Buddha, with Gautama Buddha, with a historical Buddha. And he says, ultimately, I'm not here to take teachings from you. He speaks to Buddha. He says, I just want to see you. Because he says, I know that by just seeing your hands or feet, that's enough. It's like, it's like your hands are mudras, your feet are mudras. Your simple words, even when you say welcome, it's a mantra. Because it comes from that transcendental consciousness and it's an invitation it's an opening there that's why the spiritual realization like for those of you who are interested in this part of yoga i'm going to speak about other principles and we have so many other things in yoga uh, but for those who are interested in reaching the top in this way and who have the aspiration the motivation and who even have the power to believe that it could happen in this body, in this lifetime for you, then for those people, this is what spiritual realization is. I advise you to study it carefully 
because it, be, it can be that the spiritual realization is described in some of the traditions of humanity in a way which magnetizes you completely. And you say, why didn't you say so from the beginning? When I studied the teachings of Buddha, I didn't hear this, uh, it, it, because Buddha is talking from his angle. And Shankaracharya talks from a slightly different angle. And Abhinava Gupta and Jesus and others, they talk from each one from their angle. And they show you a facet of this indescribable global reality. And that's why the first step for you, if you want to be interested in the spiritual part of yoga, is to find out if there is a facet which interests you. Is there any presentation of spirituality in yoga, in tantra, in any of the religions or spiritualities of the world where you say, that's my way? I, that one, when I hear it said in that way, like I wouldn't do a step to just reach the void. I don't know why everybody is so crazy about... I don't want... But I want love. I want eternal love. I want a love which is as big as this universe. You found your horse. You found your motivation. You found the vritti, the emotion, which can take you there. That's why for several people, spiritual realization is several things, while at the top, it means just one thing. It means one and the same thing. But that mountain can be climbed in many ways. If there is absolutely no way in which that mountain thrills you, and if there isn't this blind spiritual intuition which says, yes, 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 I know, then automatically one has to see which other parts of the yoga practice can maybe open that door. Maybe if I deal with yogic healing. Maybe if I have a great life in which I blend knowledge, sensuality, karma yoga, selfless service, and other things, and then my life lived in a good way leads me there. Or maybe paranormal abilities, if I will start moving in the astral body on each and every planet in our solar system, then I will suddenly have the feeling of how ephemeral the physical life is, of how small the body and the life on earth is, of how free the spirit can be when outside of the body, and then I'll be ready to move to the next direction. Everything, selfless service, a good life, tantric sexuality, uh, exerting paranormal, experiencing paranormal abilities, they can be like a springboard which takes you again to the spiritual part of yoga. It can be an argument for, okay, I've done enough of this, now in my heart a new voice has emerged. And that's why don't be afraid of the spiritual part of yoga, because it's not imposed, and nobody says that a green apple, and by green I don't mean, I don't mean a Granny Smith green apple, I mean an, a green apple like an unripe apple, which is not ready to be picked up, then that apple shouldn't be picked up. You should have the patience to let it ripen. And if you want to ripen it faster, then you put it in a plastic bag. Then you put an infrared lamp on it. You accelerate its ripening by using methods, but still it cannot be picked up while it's totally unripe because it can't be used pretty much for anything. So it's the same with your soul and aspiration. You come in, a, uh, in this exclusive environment of Agama, 
where some of the people in Agama are extremely on the spiritual part, and that for some people can be demotivating or confusing. Remember, yoga is many things, and you have to find your place in the big puzzle of life. And when your apple is ripe, then I can promise it will be picked, it will be ready for the picking. So, live in your own shoes. If you don't feel that you are Milarepa, don't try to live in the shoes of Milarepa. Because it's not, it's not, it's, it's going to be fake. It's not going to be you. You are just going to live a false life and when you'll be 70 years old, you'll detest it and you'll refuse it and you'll reject it. Live your life and with wisdom. You are condemned to be enlightened. Sooner or later you will reach ecstasy and nirvana and uh, let the process go in the way in which your heart tells you to go. But if you heard that some people here in Agama say that if you stand 10 minutes on your head every day, if you do 10 minutes of headstand every day, it's going to help. And if you feel like, I can do that, 10 minutes of headstand every day, anytime, I will do it, then do it. That's exactly the voice of your soul. It means you agree with instruments that are accelerating your process of evolution. So don't, be, don't feel alienated because some people in Agama and in the world want to do the spiritual part of yoga. Don't be frightened of it. Or it's like, oh, um, no, that thing is, uh, I don't know what to think about it. Everybody is where they are. And if any one of you learns to heal cancer by pranayama and diet and hatha yoga, you are doing a great service to this humanity. And in a certain way, you are a bodhisattva already. You are a karma yogi and you are doing a great good to the whole universe, symbolized through your fellow men, symbolized through your neighbors. So everybody, uh, although I started and I like to start with the highest, because everything comes from the highest, that's where the first principle is, and that's where the essence and the truth is, that truth and essence has to manifest here and now in your life, in the way in which it manifests. And if you are one of the crazy people, welcome to the club. I can only say that you are blessed with a wonderful madness. And the same madness which afflicted Shankaracharya and Ramakrishna and Rumi is afflicting you. And you are in a very noble company when you are there. Although the people who don't have it will think like, ah, oh, that person is like damaged goods. Ramakrishna was damaged goods for many people, but remember what Rumi says in one of his poems. Today I saw you, he talks to God, and he says, today I saw you, and those who are not looking the same way as I was looking, now they are sorry. Like the ugly little duckling of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale proved eventually to be the most beautiful swan. It was not, but in the beginning, everybody thought it's just an ugly little duckling. So sometimes there is this metamorphosis that the little ducklings become swans because they are not afflicted by a disease, but they are pervaded by noble ideals. Enough of this. I spoke uh, tonight about the 
outcome of this first principle, that there is a first principle, which is the God principle, which cannot be demonstrated even by an avatar like Jesus or Krishna. It cannot be demonstrated, and it's on purpose that the reality is that way, that some people have the intuition of this first principle, and what derives from it is this need for spiritual realization, which spiritual realization is many things for many people. And I hope that in the world of yoga, especially of tantric yoga, you are finding this multilateral presentation so that you can find a language which speaks to you. You can find a way which speaks to you. No, it's many people who, no, there are American people who became disciples of Yogananda and they became, they reached Samadhi through yoga. They were born in a totally different meridian. They were born in a different world. But see, karma, dharma, the universal forces make that now we live in a much smaller world. Ten centuries ago, you are probably doomed to live in the village where you are born for most of your life. And then you had to find the meaning of your existence, your happiness, there. My grandmother almost never lived, left the village where she lived. She lived all her life, 80-something years, in one village, in one house. Extremely seldom she went 20 kilometers away to a nearby city or something. There were people who lived this ancient life happy with what they had. Today, because you have access to hearing teachings from the Dalai Lama or from Eckhart Tolle or from... Uh, you know, the Sufi teachings of Rumi rendered by modern-day Sufis, then the world has become much smaller, and the souls are born in nations and in families in a way which allows them to travel and to share a lot of traditions. That's why spirituality has a special profile in this period, in this part of Kali Yuga where we live. Enough for tonight. We'll continue in the coming... Um, Satsangs, I intend to also continue with some of the analysis of some Upanishads of yoga, sacred Upanishadic texts about yoga, to give you a diversion from the Hatha Yoga and Tantric texts. So, we, I'm not going to continue much more with these principles. I just wanted to give you first an inspiration for your practice. Like, be motivated, do your practice the way you feel you should do it, and go as deep as possible, according to your hearts. Enough for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for resisting this long story. And uh, see you in the coming days and weeks, according to this. Enough. <laughs>